Welcome back to Pure Curiosity. I'm Iris McAlpin, and today I have a conversation with psychologist and author Hilary McBride. And I mentioned last episode, I really wanted to have a woman guest this week, and I guess asking you shall receive, Hilary reached out to me to talk about her new book, Mothers, Daughters, and Body Image. And I'm so glad she did because she is absolutely lovely, but I suppose more to the point, she is incredibly insightful and very well read. I was really impressed. And over the next hour, we take a critical look at modern culture, parenting, and our relationships with our bodies. And you may hear this and think, oh, I don't have kids or body image issues. This isn't relevant for me. But as usual, this conversation covers a lot of ground. And really, if you have any interaction with children at all, or think you may want to be a parent someday, Hillary brings to light some really important points about how we internalize messages and how parents can completely unwittingly transmit negative thoughts and beliefs to their children. And if you are a parent, mother or father, I really hope you'll keep listening because a lot of the traditional parenting scripts just don't work anymore. And maybe they never did, but they really don't now. And based on what a lot of my friends with children tell me, it can feel like flying blind when it comes to media and technology. Having those more complex, difficult conversations with your children is increasingly necessary. And Hillary has some really great tools for that. And just as a daughter, an eating disorder survivor, and someone who is gearing up to be a parent in the not so distant future, I was really grateful for her messages. And I think you will be too. So enjoy. Hi, Hillary. Thank you for joining us. I'm so thrilled to be here with you. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So there are so many things I want to ask you about, but <laughs> let's just start with the obvious one. You have just published a book. Mm-hmm. So can you talk to us a little bit about how that book came to be and what it touches on? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the book is really the the long-term answer to a question I had a very, very long time ago, which was how how does it work if women love their bodies in a world that tells us that we should hate them and we should constantly be trying to make them disappear and we should control them? What does it look like to to love our bodies as women just as they are? And the second part of that is, what will I do one day if I have a daughter? Because I have a history of an eating disorder and I want to know that if I have a daughter one day that I can give her messages that are different than the ones that I struggled with. Hmm. So the book is the answer to those two questions. And actually it's the, the non-academic version of my master's thesis. So it's actually empirical research. Sometimes when you read a book that someone wrote about body image, they had a really great um, idea in the shower one morning and they wrote a book, but you're like, is this, you know, is this really going to work for me? And so one of the things that I think is actually really appealing about this book is it tells us the story of some of the women that I interviewed about their experience of learning to love their bodies and their interviews with their moms that I did for my academic research about can we pass on different messages to our daughters than the ones that we received 
And then it also tells a little bit about my story of eating disorder recovery. And so it's just meant to be a collection of stories that have grounding in academic research that give us this hope, this torch for a new way forward to feel like it is possible to feel different things about our bodies than the things that we've always felt before. Mm, so that's, um, yeah, that's the gist of it. Uh, there's a lot of a lot of ins and outs. So usually when people have questions more about the academic process or the research methodology, we can go more into that. But it's meant to be this inspiring collection of stories. Um, because like I, I the, the book is called Mothers, Daughters, and Body Image, Learning to Love Ourselves as We Are. And some people say, well, if I, you know, I'm, I'm not a mom, can I read the book? And I say, of course, because it, all of us are daughters. Mm-hmm. Every single woman is a daughter, which means that she has had a mother who either was present or not present, uh, has had a mother who loved her body or not, uh, sent clear messages, sent mixed messages. But in addition to that, if you think about it from a sort of metaphorical perspective or spiritual perspective, we're mothered in so many ways, mothered often by media. Some of us grew up sitting in front of the TV watching sitcoms and we're mothered by the mothers on those, you know, on those TV programs. Yeah. So, yeah, we have lots of different kinds of mothers um, and lots of different sources of influence in our lives as women that teach us about what it means to be a woman, what it means to have a female body, and what it means to struggle with our sense of identity and the problem of beauty and appearance and weight. So my hope is that it will start this dialogue between us as women about how to feel differently about our body and maybe how to push back on some of the stories that we've always heard about how important it is to look a certain way to be lovable. Mm, yeah wow um so many different directions I could go with this. I know, I know. okay so well one thing I really wanted to cover with you um because you know there are people listening to this that are either parents or prospective parents male and female and I know that you have given talks about you know dealing with body image if you're a parent and dealing with children and you know even in my own community I have people talking to me this about this all the time like you know I have a a nine-year-old daughter and she's already dieting and these kinds of things. So how can we help parents navigate this terrain a little more effectively? Yeah. Well, that's such a, such a huge question. Um, but it's such an important one because it, it points to the fact that we're all connected to each other, that Mm -hmm. parents need community members who can equip them and who can support them to have, hard and beautiful conversations with their kids. We're not meant to do this thing alone in isolation. And if you think about the structure of the family, it works best in in a village. It works best surrounded by other people who say, we've got your back. So really where we start is by having the sense of courage and vulnerability to ask for help and to ask the people that we see have kids, how can we help you so that people feel like they're not alone in their struggles. And then I think we have to be really, really careful about the messages that are communicated both directly and indirectly to our kids. Um, I don't have any children myself, but I certainly think about the kinds of things that I say about myself and the kinds of things I say about my about other people when I'm around my friends' kids, mm-hmm. right? What am I saying when I see them first? Am I saying, wow, you're so pretty or, oh, to the boy, wow, you look so strong or I bet look at that truck you're playing with. Like, what are we communicating to those around us, even if we're not the parents, even if we're just the community members? Um, and we need to be really careful about the things that are communicated indirectly, like, mm-hmm. There's some stuff that shows up in academic research about the kinds of indirect communication that kids receive when 
parents, moms in particular, are scooping out the casserole onto the family, you know, all of the plates sitting around the table, and everybody gets two scoops except for the girls. Mm. Get one scoop, right? So those really subtle messages about who gets to eat, who gets to nourish their body, and things that without even being said, kids start to pick up on. And everybody who has kids knows that the whole old saying, um, do what I say, not what I do, doesn't actually work. That kids pick up the messages before they even understand language and before they understand what parents are saying about what they should do. So we have to be really careful that the messages about what we do and what we say match, that the people in our community support a vision of bodies and appearance that doesn't reduce girls and boys to appearance domains only. Uh, We need to be able to talk about these things. And then I think lastly, we need to have, or maybe not lastly, but another thing that comes to mind is parents need to be able to have hard conversations with their kids about what they see in the media. So what we know, something that's called co-viewing shows up in academic literature as being a very important protective factor, which is parents sitting with their kids while they're watching TV. And if something comes up on the screen, like a woman who looks a certain way, and it's clear that she's actually super, super unhealthy and very underweight, saying to their kids, hey, what do you notice? What do you notice about that? And isn't it funny that we rarely see people on TV who actually have healthy body weights? And isn't it interesting that we rarely see girls on TV who are who are active and who are doing things with their body? They're most of the time you know, preoccupied with makeup or with getting good grades or fashion and where are the shows on TV that show girls running races and training on sports teams and having conversations with kids, which educate them to think critically about what they see in the media. So those are some other important things that parents need to do. Mm, Yeah, that I think is really, really important because I think Mm -hmm. these days we're just bombarded with imagery from every angle. It it feels like, and, um, And I think, but, you know, I guess I'm curious to know for parents, kids have, you know, devices strapped to them (laughs) practically from birth. Um, And so, you know, and you can't necessarily be around your kids all the time. And do you have any sort of advice for, um, you know, bringing up some of these topics if you aren't necessarily present all the time when your children are consuming media? Yeah. Yeah. And in fact, all the more reason to have those conversations. It makes me think of a conversation I've had with my husband. Um, I think really when cell phones started to boom as someone who is in the field of counseling psychology and understands early neurocognitive development in kids and what screen time and media really does to their brains, I started saying to him things like, oh man, when we have kids one day, we shouldn't, you know, we should move to sub-Saharan Africa because (laughs) we can get away from, you know, get away from cell phones and whatever. And such an ignorant statement really on my part. But my, my statement was really like, this is so scary. Let's try and get away from it. Yeah. And my my boyfriend and I have had similar conversations. Yeah, exactly. So I definitely get that. Yeah. And so Kevin, my husband had said, you you know, that actually people in Africa have just as many cell phones as we do. And he's, he's traveled there extensively and was like, I started thinking, wow, we can't really get away from this. And if we can't get away from it, then maybe we need to learn how to think critically about it and deal with it. And so I think my response, although ignorant, is just very human. Like when something scares us, we want to try and get away from it. When media is around us and it's terrifying, the images that we're seeing about women's bodies and the things that are being communicated about mental health, 
it's easy to just say, let's hide under a rock. But actually, the problem is that that doesn't make it go away. It just right. says, we're la, 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 you know, fingers in your ears. We're not going to listen. We're not going to think critically <laughs> about this. And actually, what takes more of us but is healthier in the long run is if we can dissect media together. And so what I might suggest is parents having conversations with their kids, like, what kinds of stuff are you seeing on social media? And what are your friends you know, what do they send you on Snapchat? And what do you see on Twitter? And what's on Facebook these days? And what do you think about it? And do you notice that it makes you feel a certain way? Oh, wow, you notice that you actually feel worse about yourself, or you feel kind of distracted, or you get into this whole, you know, vicious cycle of, of looking at more images and feeling worse about yourself, and then looking at more images, or a, a rabbit trail where it's been three hours, and your homework's not done, and you haven't really got anything to show for that time that you spent. Mm -hmm. So you can have kids start to question their use of social media and their use of their interaction with media on their own, even if it's not, you know, even if they're sitting at the dinner table and their phone is away. So yeah. I think having this conversation, but then alluding to my comment that I just made, sitting at the dinner table while the phone is away, there needs to be time when people are not on their devices. Yeah. I think what seems really hard for a lot of the parents that I work with is that that means that they have to put their devices away. Mm -hmm. And so we can't ask kids to do things that we're not willing to do. And so we need to take responsibility as models for the next generation. You know, we can't ask you to put your phone away if every single time you look at us, our head is down and we're scrolling, scrolling through Instagram as well. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, I think it's it's really important that you're sort of highlighting this idea that kids are such sponges. I think people are sponges yeah. in general, but it's like if, if we're saying one thing and doing another, they pick up on that. They're not stupid, <laughs> you know? And Yeah. Um, There's actually something in trauma therapy that we call the false positive, which is it's more advantageous for us to pay attention to the messages that are contradictory than it is for us to pay attention to the messages that make us feel safe and connected. Because if you think about it from an evolutionary perspective, if I'm walking through a, you know, a jungle and I hear a rustling in a bush mm -hmm. and all of a sudden my nervous system gets activated, I'm in fight or flight. What's there? Is there, you know, is there a wild animal who's going to get me? It, and then I hear another rustling. Is it more advantageous from a, from a survival perspective for me to disregard the second wrestling, or to listen to it. And if you think about it from a, from a survival perspective, if I'm in a situation of danger, it's actually better for me to notice all of the things than it is for me to disregard certain information uh, and then perhaps risk my safety. And so mm -hmm. our brain is wired to notice discrepancies between things, to notice patterns, particularly patterns which make us feel a certain way, make us either feel really good, our brain gets hooked on to seeing those things, or things that make us feel not so good, our brain can get hooked on to those things too. And so if you feel like it's advantageous for you to be on your phone, it's also important to know that your kid is watching you and that they're going to pick up on the message about how it feels for them when they're trying to talk to you and you're on your phone and are going to store that in a memory that says that this is actually something that's totally acceptable in our family. And we, we can do this. We can not listen to each other or we can not pay attention to each other. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Now, yeah. you do quite a bit of research on um, neuroscience in general, right? Is that part of your, yeah. your education? 
Yeah. And so in, I'm a doctoral candidate in counseling psychology. And so as part of my PhD, I've got a few different areas of clinical and academic interest. Uh, my clinical interests and academic interests overlap, generally speaking. And the clinical interests would be things that I do really in person with people in, in a therapeutic setting um, for them to come in and get therapy. And then the academic stuff is mostly what I, I write about. And like I said, there's lots of overlap. But one, of area, one area of my clinical and academic specialty is trauma therapy. And trauma is best understood not just as a felt experience, but also what happens in your brain-body system when you feel overwhelmed, when something is, is too much, uh, when it poses a threat to the survival of your organism. And it can actually be really, really helpful for people to understand that the reason that trauma feels the way that it does is because they're neurologically, they're neurologically wired to respond a certain way. So mm -hmm. understanding trauma is, is best done, I think, through a whole person lens, which looks at what happens in the body, what happens in the mind, what happens in kind of our sociocultural context and looking at all of those together. And neuropsych is a, is a big part of that. Very, very interesting. Now, yeah. are you sort of on board with the Peter Levine right. model of trauma therapy? Yeah. So he does a lot of somatic experiencing, looking mm -hmm. at integrating the body and the processing of stored implicit affect and and kind of trauma memory so yeah absolutely do some of that stuff um and his colleagues um are a big influence on me as well but yes peter levine has a very loud voice a very prominent and meaningful influence on the trauma therapy community that's that's really cool that you're aware of his stuff yeah no i've i've gotten some training in somatic experiencing oh, myself and yeah I, i'm a huge fan of it it was very instrumental in my own healing actually oh wow I'm so glad to hear that yeah. that's you know it's it's unfortunate that a lot of people get uh get trauma therapy or what they're told is trauma therapy but it doesn't involve the processing of stuff that happens in their body and so they Absolutely. often feel like they're crazy or they've been working at it for so long and mm -hmm. spending so much money and nothing's really shifting and so any of the trauma therapies that involve Specific attention to brain-body integration, I see, are just head and shoulders above any kind of intervention for trauma. Yeah, I, I feel the same way. For me, I was so disconnected from my body that mm -hmm. at first it was like trying to learn a foreign language with no right. translation manual. Yeah. I was like, what do you right. mean I'm supposed to like listen to my body? What are you talking about? Right. But, <laughs> but over time, I was able to push through that, thankfully. Yeah, um, absolutely. Well, it reminds me of so much of my experience of disordered eating, too. Um, there's a woman named Neva Paran who's come up with what we call the developmental theory of embodiment, which looks at how the fragmentation of mind and body is connected to eating disorders. So instead of people and women in particular just being focused on appearance domains and what it looks like, what they look like from the outside, she's been one of the kind of the forerunners in the field to address how when the body has felt unsafe, mm. it's not a place that people want to be. And so Absolutely. they're actually trying to control and get away from the body. And guess what? Feelings live in the body. Mm -hmm. including satiety cues, things like, am I hungry? Am I not hungry? Um, do I feel like it's safe to take up space right now? To be fully present, to be fully yourself means being in your body. But in a dualistic world where we're told that thoughts are are better, uh, better than feelings, that feelings are irrational, that they're, um, they can't be trusted, mm. 
And when there's such a pervasive amount of sexual assault culture that makes it basically really just, it's very unsafe for a lot of women just because they're women to live in this world. It, it can be that we learn over time that our bodies are not a place where it's okay to hang out. And so we learn to leave our body. We learn to disappear from our body into our thoughts as a way of not having to really, to feel. And that is one of the things that can often contribute to disordered eating, not just, not even focused on appearance, just thinking like the body's not safe. I want to get out of the body. Mm, You're speaking my language. I actually talk about that very thing in my program. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I very much do. Yeah. Um, And it's, you know, this last month or how, um, I forget the exact date of when the Harvey Weinstein thing came out. And I don't know if it's been quite as prominent in the news in Canada as it has been Mm. here, but you know, it's, it is difficult to know how to navigate these waters sometimes when, you know, new allegations of sexual abuse or assault or misconduct are coming out seems like five times a day. And, um, and I know that you have quite a background in feminist studies as well, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So generally most of my theoretical and clinical approaches look at seeing a whole person, not just as an individual, but as we exist in a sociocultural context and looking at all of the narratives around gender and sex and kind of value and patriarchy that influence both mental health and our feelings about our body and trauma and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, looking, looking at the whole person, um, but also integrating the, the feminist piece in there as well. So then what is your take, if you don't mind my asking, mm. on this whole situation, you know, as, as a woman, as a feminist, when mm-hmm. you see all these headlines in the news, what is going through your mind? Well, a few things. Um, we're, we're hearing something that most of us already know just from being alive, <laughs> that like this is what it's like to be a woman in this world, to feel like there's no safe place to turn. Yeah. Um, so that's one of the things that I'm thinking. I'm simultaneously shocked and um, totally unsurprised. <laughs> yeah. Right? yeah. In a way, there is this dual response that I have of like, no, no, but, but also feeling like, but of course, I mean, if it happens in situations as normal as between family members or, you know, at the, at the local, you know, grocery store or whatever between employees, why wouldn't I assume that we, that it would also happen in situations where women are often devalued and men in position of power, positions of power who have a lot of wealth and a lot of privilege feel like they can get away with sorts of treatment because just because they're powerful. So I'm I'm both I'm shocked, um, I'm not surprised, I'm saddened, I'm angered, I have loads of big emotions. Yeah. Um, another thing that I'm thinking about when I'm seeing all of this stuff come out is all of the women who also have an experience but feel like they haven't been able to talk about it or uh, the responses from certain people in the media which are minimizing the impact that it has on women's experience of sexual assault and just kind of what it's like to live in a world where there's consistently this lurking potential for violence and unsafety simply because you were born with a vagina. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think about the ways that that people's own trauma has been triggered just by seeing that. Yeah. Um, so a lot of clients that I've that I work with who come in for individual therapy in the last month or so have come in and said, you know, 
I've had so many conversations about me too with my family members and what it's making me realize is that I'm, I'm still not safe, that I still am not believed, that I still feel re-traumatized every time I think about my, you know, the assault that I lived through and the fact that nobody believes me because it was at a party and maybe I, mm. you know, maybe there was drinking involved or whatever it is. And so it, I feel um, kind of, I have these reactions on a really big scale, but then also feel for the individual people that I'm working with and what seeing all of this stuff coming out does to their lives. And unfortunately, when we see things proliferated in the media, sometimes it can be really good to get the word out. But if people have experiences of trauma, uh, waking up and seeing that thing, seeing whatever headline, seeing whatever story, first thing in the morning, it can really change the way that their day feels. It can change the way that they relate to the people around them. It can make it feel like it's all of a sudden right at the surface again, like all the healing work that they've done is... is um, it's all for naught because the world isn't changing. And yeah, so I feel for people kind of on a global scale, but also on an individual scale that this is, this is hard to see stuff come out in the news. And then there's another part of me, which is also really glad that we're not letting people get away with things anymore. Um, they're being held accountable. And hopefully, the fear for men, particularly in Hollywood, will yeah. be that they're going to be found out. And so they're going to be a lot more careful about how they treat women. And that hopefully because of their fear of getting caught and busted, uh, it'll change the way that men treat women. That's my yeah, hope. I really hope that's true as well. And I guess another hope that I've had, you know, I, I worked in the entertainment industry for a little while, certainly, you know, not as deep into it as a lot of these other people that have come forward. But sure it did give me a sense of the culture and I did get a very strong sense that womanizing was right. very much like embedded in the culture. And that that was like, if you didn't do it as a man, almost like there was something wrong with you. Wow. And, yeah. Wow. And it was just oh it was so normal. And so it, it made me, you know, I was thinking about this yesterday, mm. maybe a culture will emerge where men don't feel like they have to do that. And, and that's not to say that these men were doing this because they felt like they have had to, right, I think there's, right, but yeah. I think there was a very complex system in play here and these things were perpetuated over quite a long time scale. Yeah. And I'm hoping that not only will they be afraid to do things that are damaging, but also mm -hmm. for the ones who maybe participated begrudgingly, um, there'll be permission to treat each other more respectfully. Well, it makes me think about something that, you know, for some listeners, this may seem like a really absurd connection to be drawn. But when you think about the Holocaust in Nazi Germany, there were so many people after the fact who said, I just did it because they made me do it because yeah. I didn't have a choice. And when we think about the, the impact of perpetrating violence on somebody else, we can't be accountable to anybody else's opinions of us except for our own and our standard of morality and who are the people that we're interacting with and can we stand for our actions and the way that we're treating them and so I have very little tolerance for people who are doing it to try and belong as part of a community yeah. as part of like this kind of macho or hyper masculine oh, yeah. identity like you you have to answer for your actions and you can, if you want, find a community of men who would oppose that kind of behavior and you can find belonging with them. And so although you want to be a part of something or you're afraid of being made fun of or you think that that's part of the culture, like you're the one at the end of the day who has to answer to your behavior. 
And I don't think there are any excuses in terms of yeah, yeah, culture. There, there certainly aren't. Like, I think excuse is definitely the wrong word. I'm interested. Did you ever by any chance read a book? Um, it was called The Rape of Nan King by Iris Chang. No, but I'll have to. I'll it's, add it to my list right now. Tell me a little bit about it's, it. <laughs> it's heavy. I'll, I'll okay. state that at yeah. the outset because, um, you know, it's about genocide. But wow. um, okay. But it was really interesting to read this book and, you know, see these interviews with or um, read these interviews of people who, you know, did participate in these atrocities somewhat mm. begrudgingly. And, um, and of course, you can't say like, oh, it's not their fault. Of course, they could have said no. And it, yeah. there's a very interesting phenomenon that happens with people in large groups. And, um, you know, I, it really just has me asking the questions, what is it going to take for us to shift our culture as a whole. Mm -hmm. And I know that that's not necessarily something we can answer in a podcast, but, um, I would love to hear your take on sort of masculine feminine dynamics and what it would Mm -hmm. take to have there be like a healthier, I don't even know what the right word is, but like, I guess just relationship between the sexes. Yeah. 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 You know what? I, I think my, my first, thought that comes to mind isn't really about gender and sex. It's more about the condition of the human heart, Mm. which is that we, I think it's written into our, um, neurobiological narrative. It's written into our human code. So you, you might call it spirit, you might call it, um, essence, whatever you want to call it, but it is part of being human to want to feel like we matter and we belong and we have agency. Yeah. And I think that that's, like some listeners may disagree with me and I would encourage them to think critically about what they think makes us human and what are our basic desires and drives about being human. But from my theoretical and philosophical and spiritual understanding, I think we're, we're wired to want to connect and to belong. And we know even from an evolutionary perspective that our sense of belonging is something that mediates our survival very early on because we can't get food for ourselves. We can't, um, yeah, we can't move around, we can't talk. And so being cared for and loved and a part of something is how we survive. And if for you, um, or for listeners who are familiar with Brene Brown's work around Mm -hmm. the idea of vulnerability and shame, I think that a lot of us have, have wounds that we carry about not feeling loved, not feeling lovable, uh, and feeling like we haven't we haven't been able to find that sense of safety and connection with people that we love. And so we carry around these wounds about not feeling lovable. And we, if we're not willing to think critically about our surroundings, we'll do pretty much anything just to feel like we belong. And I think that there's a cultural story that we're told about this is the way that you are valuable as a human. If you are this kind of woman, if you are this kind of man, and it has to do with proliferating stories about hierarchy and privilege and power and money and status and appearance and all sorts of things. And so we're told in our culture that the answer to that question that we have about do I matter, do I belong, is to behave in a way that really reinforces these gender scripts that are actually reductive and harmful for us. Of course, every man who's been told, um, you know, don't boys don't cry, men don't cry, and then has grown up to realize that they can't connect with their partner because they can't feel the emotion that it takes to actually love someone knows that that story of masculinity is harmful. And any woman who 
has been told that she'd be more lovable and she'd be more valuable if she looked a certain way and her hair looked a certain way and she lost a little bit of weight, realizes down the line how how painful it is to feel like all of that energy into weight and appearance has actually not made her feel any happy and just created or happier and just created a sense of obsession over something that is really a moving target. Those women know that weight isn't the answer and that that story of femininity isn't the answer to that sense of belonging. But I think we as humans existentially just desire to know that we are valuable. And if we haven't figured out a way to know that that's unconditional, then our culture offers us the story up and says, here's one way, Mm, here's one way to belong. Yes. Which has been, it's, I'm curious to hear your thoughts about um, mm. social media and how it plays into this. Cause I feel like there's this sort of rift happening. Mm. That's a good one where mm. there are an increasingly large number of people who are speaking out publicly about very real issues. Yeah. And there are also, you know, all the Insta models who, you know, Photoshop every photo that they right. take, you know? And yeah. so there's access to these like really real raw vulnerable messages in a way that mm-hmm. there hasn't been. And there's a mm-hmm. ton of access to these like hyper stylized, idealized images. Right. Yeah. And it's, it's hard for me to, you know, I'm very two headed about social media. Yeah. I obviously use it a lot and find it, um, you know, a, a great platform for spreading mm-hmm. positive messages, but it's also, you know, not yeah. always positive. Yeah. It reminds me of a quote that I heard, and I'm I'm sorry that I don't know who this is attributed to, so some listeners may actually kind of recognize it. But if you think about a scalpel, it can save your life or it can kill you. Mm, it depends yeah. on how it's used. So is a scalpel a good thing or a bad thing? No, it's just a thing. But yeah. it becomes a good thing or a bad thing based on the human intention and the human use behind it. And so I think the same thing about social media, that anytime we are communicating messages through media to other people, those messages can be things that build people up and inform people and educate people and make this world a safer place where we're creating visibility around what different bodies look like and different stories and different experiences of being human. But what social media can also be used to do is tell the same story the same story that hurt us, the one about um, this is the best way to be to be a body in the world. This is the best way to look as a woman, and this is a desirable a desirable body or a desirable appearance. Uh, there's a woman many many moons ago. ago her name's Jean Kilborn, and she is known for a work called Killing Us Softly. Um, looking kind of one of the first major public figures who would say to groups of people, are you aware of what media is doing to our brains in terms of how we see people's bodies and really took, you know, took advertising seriously and saying, why is this really emaciated woman's arm being used to sell a car? There's no body here. Why is just this arm here or whatever it is, right? Sure. And so she she was one of the first people to to identify that and had stats around there being something like, you know, I'm going to butcher this number, but I think I remember it being somewhere around 10,000 images a day. But that was mm. in the 90s and the early 2000s. That oh, was yeah, way before be social media. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so when we look at mi- images and how images are uh, – 
stored neurocognitively and then how that influences what we what we perceive as being ideal i think we need to be really careful about the kinds of images that we see and unfortunately kids don't have the cognitive development to be able to understand long-term consequences and so they're going to be exposed to images without the ability to think critically about them but as adults we need to be responsible for our own lives and for the ways that we think about ourselves and our bodies and so if I realize that I'm feeling really really awful about my body it's nobody's responsibility but my own to monitor my social media use and to yes. change which accounts I'm following and to change which pictures I'm liking and whose videos I'm watching. And that's our job as adults to do that. And uh, then yeah. for those of us who have influence over children and young people, what we need to do is model healthy use of social media, but then also teach kids to think critically. And for kids who are young enough, we just need to say, sorry, you can't it's you're too young. Like you can't look at, you can't watch those shows. Yeah. Would you be willing to go into a little more technical um, information about, you know, how our, you mentioned something about how we neurocognitive, neurocognitively process images um, and how that shapes our ideals is yeah can you say a little bit more about that that's fascinating yeah without without losing listeners in terms of like <laughs> right. anatomy yeah. um, what I would say is like your brain works as a um like a rolodex and the things that come up most often are the most worn cards on the rolodex maybe listeners don't know what a rolodex is it's been a long time think about like a, <laughs> oh wow think yeah about a, yeah uh think about a, a forest path um if you think about a forest that has no paths through it it's going to be really hard to find your way through. You're going to have to take a machete. You're going to have to um, take a weed whacker. You're going to have to really work. And even then it's going to be, you know, where are you? There's no map for how this goes. But yeah. if you take that path that you've taken over and over and over and over again, pretty soon that becomes a well-worn trail. And then it's really easy to take it. And so when you think about neurocognitive processes, what we are most used to doing becomes the thing that we're that is easiest for us to do. Yeah. And I'm speaking behaviorally and also in terms of your thought life. If what you're used to seeing is a certain kind of body, a certain kind of image, then your brain associates that with being normal. It's the path that your brain takes the most. And so what we need to do for people who have influence over um, images that are posted is we need to post all sorts of images to give people not just one beaten path that says this is the way that the ideal body works or looks, Mm -hmm. but lots of different paths to say there are so many ways to get through the forest and there are so many different ways to think about life and our bodies and images. And so I think that um, when there is a very narrow presentation of the female form or anybody men's bodies in particular then we lose the ability to imagine a more diverse presentation of bodies and so that becomes both normal and ideal because it's what we're used to seeing the most and this is this is not as much um, neurobiological and more philosophical but it seems to be that the things that often have the most power are the things that are most visible and if you think about that from the perspective of a, um, a celebrity, mm-hmm. right? What is, what is visible is something that we attribute to being desirable and powerful. Yeah. Unless, of course, it's visible in a way that's also being made fun of or something like that. 
But what we need to do is we need to have lots of options for what is visible, what we can look at, what is presented to us, to what we see, so that we don't have the same people over and over, particularly, and I say this as a Caucasian woman, um, white people or people who are educated or wealthy Mm -hmm. or have a very stereotypically defined appearance. We need to have all sorts of different kinds of visibility to give our brain the opportunity to consider lots of different things as being desirable and beautiful instead of one story, one life, one image, one body type. Mm, Yeah. You know, it's, I completely agree with you. And it, it's gotten, I think people are really having to go further and further out of their way to do this. And, you know, the term echo chamber became really popular, mm-hmm. you know, after the, the election here. Right. And yeah. um, it really is, you know, we've landed ourselves in these sort of self-reinforcing loops. And I, I mm-hmm. certainly try to, you know, go watch Fox News, even though I don't agree with a lot of or most right. of what they say, um, and or you know, read news sources that yeah. would otherwise yeah. be different. But it's you have to actually right try. Well, if you think about what you see on Twitter, it's people that you follow, and you mm-hmm. probably follow people because you agree with them. And right. so then all of a sudden, <laughs> you're just getting news that tells you something that you already know. And so there's this self reinforcement or this. Um, like the self-fulfilling prophecy or right confirmation bias that we are more likely to believe things that we already believe. Yeah. And it becomes very, very difficult for us to, to have open minds when we're just constantly being fed the same information. So I think what's really important, and for you Americans, um, <laughs> you have an opportunity, you're going to have Thanksgiving coming up this week, yeah. and you're going to have an opportunity to talk with family members who you would never normally talk to, and see the world a totally different way, and often that makes people cringe when they think about family get-togethers, is, oh my gosh, I can't believe my uncle so-and-so who has a totally different perspective on women is going to be there, mm-hmm. but I think that what we need to say is being human is an important reason to treat people well and to listen to them. And we don't have to agree with someone to have a conversation or to respect them or to feel like we treat them with dignity. And so I think it's important for us to go out of our way to talk to people who believe different things than we believe and not with the point of changing their mind or, um, or, you know, making a mockery out of them, but actually just for changing our mind, for expanding our worldview. And something that might happen is that we believe more about the things that we already believed. It reinforces, yeah, no, this is the thing that's important for me. But what it does is it knocks down barriers and says, even if we disagree, we can still talk to each other. And that's an important part about creating, creating a world where issues can be resolved. There's a a theologian who's really interesting. His work is really progressive. His name's Peter Rollins. And he regularly says things like, war is not conflict. War is the absence of conflict. It's Hmm. the inability to do conflict well. And that Uh, if we could do conflict, we would talk to each other and we would solve problems and we wouldn't have to go bombing each other. And so if you think about conflict, conflict means being able to meet people you disagree with and find some common humanity and to treat each other respectfully in spite of your differences and perhaps even shape each other's worldview a little bit. So there's a little bit of room to meet in the middle and find the similarities and find the places where you can take responsibility. 
But truthfully, when we're fed the same information all the time, it just creates an us versus them divide, which makes it very hard to respect people who are also human. And I'm not saying that we have to like what people do and say, because I think that there are some awful things that are done and said out there. But what I am saying is I think that if we're upset at those people for for being dehumanizing to other people, then we shouldn't do the same thing back to them and dehumanize them as a way of proving our point. Absolutely. Yay. Okay, good. I'm glad that was said. (laughs) Really glad that was said. Okay, cool. Mm. Um, I do want to make sure we have like ample time to talk more about your book. Um, Yeah. Thank you for following me on this sort of tangent path. Oh, no, these are like the best (laughs) conversations. We just kind of like go where we go and and hear and learn. And yeah. So thanks for asking all these such like fantastic questions. Yeah. Well, um, so let's, you know, this is a topic that is very near and dear to me. My mother and I have talked about body image sort of ad nauseum at this point. Um, and we've, we've gone to a good place, but it wasn't always, well, to put it very lightly, it wasn't always easy. (laughs) Um, yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, I imagine your experience with your own mother was Mm. a large impetus for Mm -hmm. creating this. Yeah. And you know, what's funny is that I didn't really, um, I don't think I was really consciously aware of it as a kid. I don't think that I sat there and thought, you know, my mom's communicating messages to me about my body and that's why I have an eating disorder. It was just kind of, it just kind of happened. And it was really in my therapeutic work in recovery in treatment centers and, you know, in years and years and years of therapy and work with nutritionists and psychiatrists and psychologists and, right? Group therapy and all sorts of stuff that I started to realize, wow, there are some things that happened that were really painful for me. And, and I think that they shaped the way that I responded to pain and my inability or my ability to, to be in my body, to believe that my body and that I was good. Um, I think that body image is an important thing to talk about, but I don't necessarily think that body image was it might have been the it might have been the straw that broke the camel's back for me that I had this really latent um, undercurrent of self hatred for a very long time, yeah. and then through puberty, my body started changing, and eating disorder was um, just the best friend that stepped in and helped me manage that, and gave me a sense of control and agency over my life and over my body, and helped me feel like I could push back on the change that felt totally catastrophic and chaotic inside and outside. Um, and I remember, uh, yeah, that, that even though when I first started engaging with eating disorder behaviors and really started thinking about my body in that way and changing the way that I ate, it was about my body image. When I looked back and through treatment, I saw that the problem started a long time before that yeah. and started about my beliefs about myself. And, and that I think was in large part shaped probably a mix of because of my temperament I'm an extremely extremely sensitive person which mm-hmm. I have found is a, an incredible gift in my therapeutic work now because it means that I can feel deeply with people and I can love deeply and I can be really attuned to the hurts that other people feel but my sensitivity made me really aware of things that probably my my parents tried to hide not yeah like their struggles and their pain. Um, I didn't grow up in an abusive home at, by any stretch of the imagination. But I think because I was really sensitive and had big feelings and um, took things in really deeply, 
I think a lot of parents, they do things and don't realize their kids are watching. And for a kid like me, I took a lot of stuff in. <laughs> yeah, I very much relate to that. Yeah. And something I've thought a lot about, because, you know, I'm sort of at this point in my life where children are on the not too distant horizon. And, right, right. <laughs> you know, it's it's scary to think about, like, wow, you know, these little subtle things that were said or done made such a, like, the ripple effects of that were huge. And it, it sort of makes you crazy thinking about how you may or may not, like, unintentionally harm your child. Right, so, right. How do parents navigate that? I mean, I, yeah. you mentioned like being able to have a difficult conversations and maybe that's part of it, but what do you mean by like difficult conversations? Yeah. I think maybe being honest in ways that help people see what's going on. And, um, I'll tell you, I'll tell you specifically what I think might be helpful for some listeners, which is taking responsibility as a parent for the ways that you might've hurt your kid, even yeah. before they, they know that that hurt them or not. And what that means is going to your kid and saying, I'm, I'm so sorry that I let you down. Mm. And that was about me and not about you. And I want to make sure that you know that you're always loved and that it's also okay to say, I'm sorry about things. I want you to know that when you grow up and be an adult, that you don't have to be perfect. And so I want to model for you that, that it's okay to not be perfect as a parent but that when you do make mistakes, you have to take responsibility for them. So that's an example of one hard conversation to have. Beautiful. Uh, and I think a lot of parents feel like if they are, if they say they're sorry, that it means that they are a failure. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, man, I don't know what the story is, but it seems like a lot of people have a really hard time saying, I'm sorry. Yeah. That was a tricky thing in my household too, where it was sort really? of like, if you said, sorry, it was more an admission of guilt right. than yeah. like actually taking responsibility. And so if you right. said, I'm sorry, it was more like, oh, well, then you did do it. Okay. You know, and then it right. made things worse. So yeah. it, was, it took me quite a while actually to learn to say, I'm sorry. Because for mm -hmm. me, it was like a fear of being reprimanded further. Right. Exactly. So we don't say we're sorry because taking responsibility means that we're actually going to get more hurt. Right. And so we want to protect ourselves from being more hurt, but then the things that need to be repaired don't get repaired. Yeah. So I think about sorry as, as a mix of empathy and responsibility taking. It's a mix of saying, I hurt because you're hurting and, mm. and I, I don't want to add to that. And I'm sorry. And like, it, and I, I recognize that maybe at times I have. And yeah. so I freely use I'm sorry in therapy. Someone will come in and say, I had a bad day. I'm, saying, I'm so sorry to hear that. And I'll say, you didn't do anything. I'll say, I know I didn't, but I don't <laughs> need to, like, I didn't need to do anything to say my heart hurts that your heart is hurting yeah. and that we're all in this together together. And I care about you. So it can be really hard to say I'm sorry, but then what you're doing is you're raising kids who don't know how to take responsibility. Right. And so the beautiful thing about parenting is that, you're never meant to do it perfectly because you don't want to have kids who grow up and think that they're supposed to do it perfectly. Right. You want to say it is part of being human to make mistakes. And so let's own that. Well, maybe you didn't mean to spill, spill the thing, right? But you did. <laughs> you did. And so it's your job to clean it up. And does it mean you're a bad person because you made a mistake or you, you made a mess? No, it doesn't mean you're a bad person. 
but it does mean that you have an opportunity to take responsibility and and actually that can feel really really good to know that we are both powerful and messy enough to make mistakes but we are powerful and gracious enough that we can also clean them up and i think that we need to know that about not just spills as kids or parenting but in the workplace and in relationships yeah one of the things that I often find people get stuck with in couples therapy when I'm doing couples therapy is, is they think about the difference between, or they don't understand that there's a difference between intent and impact. Mm. So intent is I actually consciously planned this and did this and wanted this to happen. And then impact is what it does to you. So the intent might have been, I'm just trying to express myself, but the impact is that I really hurt your feelings. And we think often that we don't need to take responsibility if we didn't have a negative intent. Well, I wasn't trying to hurt you, and so I'm not going to own the fact that you were hurt. Mm -hmm. But really, the only way to create healthy relationships is to say, I love you enough that it's more important for me to to show you that I love you than to show you that I'm right. Yeah, you know, this makes me think about, I felt for some time like sort of, well, I'll say Western culture because that's what sure. I can say for sure. Um, yeah. We have a, a very strange relationship to responsibility where right. I think yeah. it, it occurs for a lot of people like this burdensome thing, like it's a bad thing, mm-hmm. like having responsibility. Mm-hmm. Maybe in a job context, it's like good because you get a raise. But otherwise, you know, taking responsibility for something just seems like this really scary, like difficult thing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And there are some existential psychotherapists, particularly Frankel, um, Yalom, who else? Um, maybe even Nietzsche, too, that, that talk about, um, and Langel, that say we can't really be free unless we know how to take responsibility because then we're tied to everybody else. And so really the way to freedom is the way to say, this is my life, what am I going to do with it? But I'm thinking, I've got the book here, and there is in the epilogue a letter, or it is the epilogue, it's a letter that I wrote to my future daughter. And I, like you, think that kids might be on the horizon in the next next little while, not not today, not this year, (laughs) um, but looming. And my fear is that I'll have a daughter who struggles with her body the way that I did. And so I wrote a letter to her. And really, in writing this, what I was trying to do is write a letter to all people and to all women. And so I'd love to read a little bit of it to yeah, you. please do. Um, and this is, this really is meant to answer your question about some of those hard conversations that parents need to have with their kids. So it says, Dear daughter, I don't know how old you are or how old I will be when you're reading this, but I'm so glad that you are. And even though while I'm writing this, I don't know who you are while you're reading this, I know that I love you. Even now, while you're still a dream to me, I have so many things to say, things that I want you to always know and things that I want us all to know. You don't have to be anyone else's version of you to be lovable, worthy, and belonging, and that includes me and my ideas for you. I love psychology and helping other people heal, but if what makes you feel alive is blowing glass or working as a welder, writing plays, or computer programming, I want you to know that the world is better off when you are the fullest and most alive version of you, not anyone else's version of you. As long as you're not hurting yourself or other people, I hope that you have the courage to try things that scare you, things that make you feel alive, creative, connected to yourself and to others. I hope that I can show you that mistakes are part of learning and that you don't have to be perfect to be valuable and to know that you belong. 
Making mistakes is part of trying things, and trying things is such an important part of growth, discovery, and adventure. I'm sorry. I hope I say this a lot. I want to show you that it's okay to say it a lot, and that part of being a healthy human means recognizing and taking responsibility for our mistakes. I want it to be easy for you to say sorry when you grow up, so that you can say sorry to the people you love and help them heal. I'm sorry for the ways I've hurt you. I'm sorry for the ways I didn't know how to make it better when you were hurting. And I'm sorry for letting my hang-ups and fears get in the way of your freedom and creativity. I'm sorry for when I made you think that my frustration and confusion was because you weren't good enough. And I'm sorry for not saying I'm sorry enough. You don't ever need to shrink down in body, body or voice or thought or action to be lovable. You are already lovable. And it's okay to feel guilty if something you do hurts yourself, someone else, or the earth. But you never have to feel shame for being who you are. It's okay to feel lots of big emotions and even lots of big emotions at the same time. You can come to me to talk about them, figure out what to do with them, and learn together how to move through the difficult things in life. You never have to feel bad about asking for help, and you never have to feel bad about sharing the scary things with the people you love and who are safe for you. Being vulnerable, especially with the right person or people, can be one of the most important paths to healing. And I'll just leave it there mm. for now. That's beautiful. Thank you. Where yeah. can people buy your book, by the way? Uh, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Indigo, um, and it should be available at bookstores as well in people's towns, the smaller ones. If they don't have it there, they can absolutely order it in. The publisher is Post Hill Press in their division of Simon and Schuster, but easy to get on Amazon okay, as great. well. Yeah. One thing I wanted to be sure and ask you, mm -hmm. you know, I know my father, I think sort of felt like at times he was in the middle of a minefield <laughs> and mm, yeah. didn't really you know, nobody talked about this stuff at that time. Um, right. What do you say to fathers who are maybe watching, mm -hmm. you know, the relationship between his wife and daughter unfold? Yeah. How to be an advocate for healthy conversations? Yeah, absolutely. I think that I think that it's important for dads to be involved, and it's hard for them to know what to say and to advocate for healthy conversations if they're not present, not present emotionally, not present physically. Um, I know that sometimes dads are the ones who work outside the home, and so parents spend a lot more, moms spend a lot more time with their kids. But it's really important for dads to have a close relationship with their kids so that they actually can speak into their lives. And what dads often find difficult, and this is what I see happening in counseling a lot with my clients, is dads don't know how to feel because they were told that feeling was bad. And so when you have this desire to get close and impact someone's life, it means that you have to actually admit that they matter to you and that you are scared about certain things and that you're worried for them and that you're excited for them and certain things hurt you. And so it's really hard for dads to be the kind of advocate that they need to be if they don't have their own stuff worked out. Yeah. Um, so I think it's really important to pay attention to what you need as a human to be a healthy human and that some of some of that will just shine through in how you interact with people around you. If you were yelled at as a kid um, by your dad, then make sure that you process that so that you learn how to express your feelings in ways besides yelling at your kids. Or if your dad was never around and not emotionally vulnerable, then maybe you need to do some work to figure out how to be emotionally vulnerable with your kids. And then I think it's important for dads to... Um, to be curious and interested in their kids, to meet their kids where they're at, um, to perhaps model what healthy conflict looks like. Like I was saying with the Peter Rollins quote before, war is the absence of conflict. 
And so maybe what dads need to do is show how to disagree well yeah. with their partner and with their kids and say, we can disagree and still respect and value each other. And I'm going to have, I'm going to model healthy boundaries for you. And I'm going to model healthy conversation for you so that you learn how to do that mm. with the people in your life, including your mom. And then I think it's really important for dads as well to, to pay attention to the kind of media that they, that they watch when the kids are around. So if dads are, you know, not really paying attention to something, but then as soon as the cheerleaders come on in the football game and your daughter's <laughs> sitting right next to you and you're like googly eyed, what do you think that's saying about what matters to you about women? You're saying that like them as a sex object is the thing that's most valuable about them. And so dads have to be super careful. Like I think you need to be super clear about the kind of media that you interact with and the kind of images that you look at and what you find desirable because dads are often communicating to developing minds. This is what uh, a healthy male looks like. Mm-hmm. And so you're set setting your kids up for, um, for future relationships with, with men based on how you are with them. So you need to be really accountable to your actions and to your kids and, to take responsibility for the ways that you hurt them and how you let them down and to be, to be um, not afraid to access your vulnerability. Yes. So, uh, yes, preaching to the choir, at least on my that's end, right. but, um, <laughs> that's right. but yeah. So um, do you have some like resources? Cause I think, you know, something I've been increasingly interested in is just, helping men learn how to navigate emotions, particularly ones who have never had any training or modeling for this. Are there any resources that you think are particularly Mm -hmm. good for this? Yeah. So there's a book um, by Donald Miller called Scary Close. There's a book um, called The Macho Paradox by uh, Jackson Katz. Um, Revisioning Men's Lives um, is a good one. I can't remember the name of the author right now. Of course, Susan Faludi, Stift. Um, I Don't Want to Talk About It is a really great book. Terrence Real, uh, that's about men and and emotions. And then another book called, did I mention Living Like You Mean It by Ronald Fredericks? Hmm. I can't remember what I said. Yeah, so that's a really, that's a really good one um, about defenses and feeling and some of the blocks that get in the way of feeling. Of course, Daring Greatly by Brene Brown. Yes. Um, yeah. I yeah, love, yeah a, I noticed you are, you're quite a bookworm and I love that. Um, oh, yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, it's true. I have a, I have a problem. My husband likes to say, I've got a book problem. And I say, I have a book solution. Exactly. (laughs) That is not a problem. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so people who are interested in some of my work can find my stuff online on my website, hillarylmcbride.com. That's Hillary with two L's and then an L and McBride Uh, on Twitter. I'll post a link too. Oh, perfect. Yeah. On Twitter, Hillary L. McBride and on Instagram, Hillary Liana McBride. So all that stuff is available. Wonderful. You can see what I'm reading online too. Yeah, I was looking at your your book list. I was like, mm, I like some of these. These are good. There you go. <laughs> yeah, yeah that that's awesome. right. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us today. What a, what a pleasure, Iris. Thanks so much for opening up the space to have these dialogues and for asking such great and thoughtful questions and for giving me space to kind of do my thing. Yeah, loved it. All right, thank you, Hillary.
Thank you so much for listening. To find out more about Hillary, head on over to irismcalpin.com. As usual, I've posted her photo, bio, and relevant links for you there. I also want to mention that on Friday, December 1st, so that's this Friday, I'm launching a free audio series featuring the stories of 16 women who have recovered from eating disorders. These are 30 to 45 minute podcast style interviews with women of all shapes, sizes, and backgrounds. And my hope is that anyone who is currently struggling or anyone who wants a broader sense of what it's like to deal with and recover from an eating disorder will learn a lot about what works and what can be potentially damaging. So you can sign up at beyondrecovery.life and the interviews will start going out on Friday. And as always, you can see more from me on Instagram. It's at Iris McAlpin and you can find links to most of my other stuff in my profile there. In the next episode of Pure Curiosity, I will be speaking with Dan Stover. He's an executive coach who specializes in international business expansion, but he also teaches emotional intelligence. That's really what he does. He teaches emotional intelligence to high-powered executives for his work and also has an extensive background working in suicide prevention and rehabilitation for gang members. And he's just one of my favorite people. I really look forward to introducing him to all of you. So until next time, stay curious.